convinced of the importance of it, try to persuade you uh, to do study in this area so that you can handle the material and talking and, and trying to reach others. Uh, to give you an idea of uh, some of the importance of it so far as the church is concerned and our reaching out in our society, we lose now, uh, I've got this on some information on a, a presentation there at Jubilee, I'm, uh, a person who was studying, has been studying the teens for some time in the church. He said, presently, we lose 45% of our young people. What, what he means by that, we're not talking about people that, that are brought up in the church and then leave and then come back. We're talking about children that are brought up in the church and leave and do not come back, that we lose 45%. And he said, in some areas, it ran as high as 75%. Well, Barbara and I can relate to that because I would easily, I would guess that uh, where we uh, were at Collins, that over the past uh, 20 or so years, that easily 75% of the young people that have been brought up in the church are now out in the world. Some of them may come back, but they're, they're out in the world and, and not in the church. And all you have to do is travel around and visit congregations and with but few exceptions, one of the things that you'll notice is the tremendous aging of the congregation that, are, that uh, we have. Uh, you're, you're unusual here. In fact, this was one of the, uh, uh, the areas that uh, we thought had hope so far as reaching out here, in that you're unusual in having as many young people as you do here. That if you go into the rural areas, uh, you will find yourself with congregations that are almost entirely with uh, older people and we have very few younger. And it's not because that uh, they're not out there, although I know our population as a whole is aging, but it, it's not because uh, they're not out there. Well, then he went ahead and pointed out that of these 45% that leave and go into the world, 33% of them, when interviewed, state that the reason was unbelief. They just simply do not believe. Uh, in Christ or in the Bible, and, and many of them have strong doubts uh, about the existence of God. And again, if you will think uh, in this area, and, and you might think, well, how can that be, or, or why, why is it really that bad? Take your mind back as just an example to Archie Bunker days and All in the Family. Everybody remembers that show, and I enjoyed it, thought it was humorous, but whether you knew it or not, and you may have already known it, but Norman Lear, who did that program, uh, is an atheist. And Norman Lear's been responsible for a lot of, of very humorous programs, but he's an atheist. And so if you think of that program, you had Archie and you had Mike. Archie was Dumbo. Uh, he, he had the most illogical, irrational reasons for everything he believed in. And Edith, was being led around by Archie. And anytime there was a religious discussion, it was Archie that got to defend Christianity. Mike was the atheist on the show. And Mike was the intellectual. Mike was the one that was rational. Mike was the one that thought very deep. Mike was the one that was on, on top of it all. Mike was the one that was always presenting uh, these uh, philosophical statements that tore at belief in God or belief in the Bible or at Christianity that Archie simply couldn't handle except with some crazy statement. Well, you could really multiply that type of thing so far as the media. I'm saying our young people, although you have the TV now, you were not brought up on it as a young person. Uh, I never even watched TV until I was up, I guess, a senior in high school or something like that. It was the black and white job. But we weren't brought up on it. And even when you did start to watch TV, you first began to watch Ozzie and Harry and things like that. But the generation now, the young generation, is the first generation to have been brought up with a TV that has been totally influenced by writers who are writing strictly from the unbelief and the non-Christian background. Okay, while that is going on, we have the public school system, and, and of course you know that's my background, and I can tell you point blank that in the point public school system, that when you take something as simple as a history book, you will find next to no mention 
of religion in it. You would never, never read about Abraham Lincoln in the typical textbook and realize that Abraham Lincoln was an extremely religious person with strong beliefs about God and about Christ and that the Bible had more influence on Lincoln than any other one book that he read. And his speeches are full of quotes from the Bible. George Washington and many of these other early founders, their speeches are full of quotes, but you won't read them in the textbooks. They purposely have been left out. Uh, they're devoid of any mention of, of the influence of religion on the lives of these people. And so our children read about their heroes and they don't learn that they, they were Christian and they had strong values and that these values influenced them in many ways. Well, all of this is going on. They're going to school and they're studying science and they're being taught the scientific method of thinking. Uh, they're being taught organic evolution from the third grade up. Uh, I've got a sampling during the course of these studies. I've got a sampling of books that, that I took from the library of the school where I was principal, and this is a little rural K-8 school in the Bible Belt. And I'll give you a sampling of the type of stuff that I pulled from the library that teaches uh, organic evolution as a fact from the word go. And these children check these books out. Their parents many times go to church and they don't even realize what's happening. Johnny is reading a book and, and he's being told how many millions of years that uh, such and such has been here and how man evolved from the eighth and he's being taught the Big Bang Theory uh, and the parents, their children are checking it out and, and many of them are almost oblivious to, to what is actually going on and yet that's what's being put in his mind. So we're reaping the result in a lot of ways. Now from my standpoint, of course it goes back further. My initial approach to Christianity is from the standpoint of the skeptic and and I, I know the influence, I feel, of, of material like that on the mind because I knew that my skepticism came as a result of a lot of material that I was reading, a lot, a lot of information that I read and came in contact with in the environment that I was being brought up in uh, did not make an unbeliever out of me, but it made a very strong skeptic, enough so that I would have never obeyed the gospel, uh, enough so that Christianity could be appealing to me from an emotional standpoint, but yet uh, intellectually uh, unacceptable. And the first lesson I ever heard that really turned me on was a lesson called Why We Believe the Bible is Inspired of God. I wasn't converted by that one lesson, but it opened up a world that I didn't know existed. It opened up a world that I realized that there were materials out there that answered questions that I had that were not being answered uh, in, in the church. Uh, in fact, my entire experience with church was that they always assumed that everybody in there believed the Bible. And if you didn't, you were mean or ungodly or something. But there was just the assumption. Uh, a lesson on the inspiration of the Bible was quoting uh, 2 Timothy, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the man of God might be perfect. Well, that is not evidence. That's a claim. You know, there's, there's no evidence behind it. It may be true, but that's still a statement. That doesn't prove the Bible's inspired. It just simply makes the claim that it, that it is. And so I know what happened when I listened to that information and when I began to study and when I eventually became a Christian. And then as I became a Christian, one of the things that I realized through the years that uh, Christian evidences was just a, a neglected topic. And, and I came to the conclusion that the reason this was the case is that most people in the church came from a background of the church and most of their acquaintances. Uh, I don't know about you, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are most of your friends Christians or members of the church? And most of your friends and acquaintances are people who believe the Bible. I mean, they may go to the, uh, this church or that church, but they, they believe the Bible. And that's, that's the world that we live in. And these other folk, you think they, they can't be very numerous because you're not, you know, you're not around them that much. But they are numerous. Those people aren't coming to church. And that represents the majority. You see right here, if you'll remember Doug Parsons, he pointed out that right here in the Bible Belt, in your own locale, if you were to make a study, 
you'd find out that 50% of the population don't go to church anywhere. And although many of those people will not look you right in the face and tell you they don't believe, that's the bottom line behind a lot of not having any interest in it whatsoever. But right in this community, if you want to go to the Northeast or to Los Angeles and other places of light nature, you would find that the percentage is a lot higher among people who absolutely do not go to church anywhere. And when you go to work and, and you meet these individuals that use bad language and, and who will take God's name in vain, you just have a tendency to keep your distance and, and you really don't have contact with them. And so our world is one where we deal with those that believe the Bible, but our children are going to school in the public school system and they're coming in contact with a lot of the other. They're going to the universities. And one of these days, some of you may get a call or have experienced similar like my mom did from my youngest brother who told her he no longer believed the Bible, that he had just taken a course in uh, New Testament at Western Kentucky College. And he had found out for the first time that we don't have the original manuscripts in the New Testament, that there are over 200,000 mistakes in the manuscripts that we have. We don't know really who wrote these various books or how they've been transmitted or anything like that. And he said he just, he felt he'd been sold a bill of goods. He couldn't, he couldn't buy into that. Uh, the experience I had at Middle Tennessee, a young man that walked out of a class and they had asked me to talk with him because they knew that I was studying in this area and had talked to some. But this young man walked out of a biology class crying. And he had got in the class where organic evolution was being taught as a fact and he tried to defend the Genesis account of creation. And he was laughed at. It wasn't the teacher. The class laughed at him. That he thought he was all by himself. I sat in a class at Middle Tennessee, not Harvard or in the Northeast, but at Middle Tennessee uh, in a class called Sociology of Religion on a graduate level. And the man made the statement that Jesus was the bastard son of a Roman soldier. And so I waited to see who would tackle him first. And I believe I'd still be waiting. That if I didn't say something that nobody said, I'm not saying that the room there, I'm, they didn't know how to handle it. And everybody just sat. And regularly during the course, there were these dr dramatic statements uh, of light nature. But that's the one that stuck in my mind. Jesus is the bastard son of a Roman soldier. I had a history professor uh, that made the statement that the Bible was at worst full of nothing but myths. At best, it was, it was history that had been grossly embellished and, and exaggerated. All right, I know if I heard those things, a lot of other people heard it also. And if you read the literature of the magazines that's out now, now keep in mind, I could have multiplied this. It just so happens that Barbara and I for years have taken U.S. News and World Report as one of our news publications. And here are some of the things that's happening on a regular basis. It's happening in time. It's in Newsweek. It's in this and in others. Who wrote the Bible? Surprising new theories, okay? Well, I guarantee you, you don't have an article by a conservative Christian <coughs> scholar uh, who's saying that, that Matthew is responsible for Matthew, etc. Okay, now what do you think happens when people read that, and there are some very good arguments and some things there that I would suggest to you that a lot of people who go to church every week could not answer, or would really not even know where they're coming from. Uh, in, in the article itself. But there it is on the head. Who wrote the Bible? Surprising new theories. Here's another one. Uh, the rekindling of hell. Okay, here's another one. Sex and religions. Churches, the Bible, and the theory over modern sexuality. Here's another one. Uh, early man, the radical new view of where we came from. And here's one. The Bible's last secrets deciphering the mysteries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, what's being said here is the latest information out from the Dead Sea Scrolls is it's going to totally refute Christianity as we know it today. The first new L, new light in the Christmas story. Okay. Here's another one. In God we trust, testing personal faith 
in a cynical age. It's interesting that although a lot of Christians don't realize what's going on, the people in the world really do. They know that Christianity, a lot of scholars are saying that Christianity is on its last leg in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that because I believe it. I'm telling you that, that unbelief is having such an effect on the minds of our people and on that young generation that scholars are actually making that kind of statement uh, concerning Christianity here in the United States. We all know that what we're experiencing in Churches of Christ is being experienced by other groups. Uh, how many of us here think that the body that we're a part of, the Church of Christ, and this limited right here in the South, are we bigger than we were 10 years ago? Are we the same? We're less. But what about the population of the United States? It's greater. So we are going down the population is going up, and our percentage of the population is going tremendously down. All right, what is happening to us? It's not just happening to us. The Episcopalian Church is just a, a fragile nothing in comparison to what it was some years back. The same is true of the Methodist, the Baptist Church, any of these bodies. They're in the process of going down. Christianity is losing ground in the American society. And, and that's with all these older people, like us, most of us, that, that are coming from a, a background of belief. Well, then what happens when this older generation dies up, and just as there arose a generation, a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, you're gonna, there's going to come a generation up in the United States that doesn't know the God of the Bible and doesn't know the Bible. I mean... Uh, uh, if they don't get it in Sunday school and they're not being taught it in the home and they're not, it's not coming out of the school or wherever, I don't know where it's going to come from. And we know that faith comes as a result of examining the, the information in the Bible. I would suggest to you that, that it's one of the most serious things we could study. I honestly believe that a lot of Christians, that we live in a very affluent society and it's so easy to get caught up in our affluence and neglect the responsibility that we have to really fight for the Lord in this society. And to give you an idea of just how important it is from the Lord's standpoint, on the one hand, we're converting people by leaps and bounds in third world countries. But 95% of all of the money that promotes mission work in the world comes from the United States. We're a wealthy country. And so you think the mission work going on anywhere in the world and 95% of all the money that supports that is coming from the United States. And so I'm saying that even though they may be converting it out there, we're very important from the standpoint of sending the missionaries over there and supporting the ones that are there. Tonight we're going to simply give you an, an overview of the field of, of Christian evidences. And what I've done is, is, or I'm going to do, is prepare a series of lessons that will range at about, over a period of a year, about probably about 38 lessons. And in those lessons, we'll look at the entire field of Christian evidences. And then we culminate next July with John Clayton, who is a former atheist and who is a specialist in the in the evidences for the existence of God. He's a scientist, has several graduate degrees in that area. I'm not a specialist in anything. I'm a generalist. I've, I've read in all these areas and studied in all these areas, but I'm not a specialist in any one. Uh, I would be com comparable to a family doctor. John is a specialist in that area. There are other people that have specialized in each of these areas that we'll look at. And what I hope is over a period of time that not only John but we will invite in people that have name recognition. Uh, I'm a good example of the fact that no matter what, you've got to have name recognition if you're going to reach out. And that we could invite in people that have name recognition who are specialists in these areas in order to get the information out. Uh, look at the first uh, statement here when we, when we think of the word Christian evidences. Uh, the definition is from Webster. Evidence is something that makes another thing evident. 
to be evident is easy to see or perceive. So when we talk about evidences for God, we're talking about any information. I don't care what it is. Any information that tends to make it evident that a creator, a supreme being, exists. Okay, when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible, we're talking about any information, wherever it may come from, that tends to make evident, easy to see, easy to perceive, that the Bible uh, is inspired by God, or the writers of the Bible were. And the same is true with the resurrection of Christ. And so by Christian evidences, any kind of information whatsoever that will tend to make it evident or easy to see these things that we're talking about. Okay, Tim, you want to go to the next one? Okay, now, here's an example of, of evidence. Look at the, uh, the little illustration before you. You have a murder victim, raped, shot three times in the head, time of death, 12.45 a.m. Here you are, you're the detective. The first thing you do is you rule out lifeless matter because you, you know, there's some, some human that did this. You rule out animals, and so you know at least that you're looking for a human being. Since the victim was raped, you know that a male was involved. He may not have been the only one, but he was involved. So you're looking for a male. And so the first thing you do as a detective, you're looking for somebody that may have motive to do this. And in the process of looking for that motive, you find that the young lady had an ex-boyfriend that was very disturbed that uh, she had broke off the relationship. And so right away he becomes a suspect. He simply has a motive, and, and that's evidence pointing in, in his direction. Okay, what you're also looking for is somebody that cannot account for this time frame. Well, it turns out that he is unable to account for that entire period of 12 to 1 a.m. He just simply cannot account for it. He has no evidence whatsoever of where he was at that time. Also, someone saw a white Ford parked out in front of the place from uh, about 12 uh, to 12.55. And it just so happens he has a white Ford. Well, then they took DNA from the crime, analyzed it from the hair and the semen, and it matched his. And then there was a gun belonging to him and with his fingerprints on it found in the nearest dumpster. Well, if you don't believe he's guilty, you at least believe it's becoming more and more evident, right? And, and I could continue to add six and seven, and we could reach a point where you would say positively, I believe it has to be him, simply because the information would become such that it would rule out everybody else. It would just simply rule out, and you would have no choice. And, and so and we do this all the time, don't we? We send people to the electric chair. We send people away for life based on examining evidence. Now, look at it a little longer though. What if all we had was the motive and he could not account for that time that we didn't have one, two, and three? He may be guilty, but you couldn't prove it, could you? Well, what if uh, we had uh, one and uh, four and five, but we didn't have two and three. Well, again, proving that it's his gun, it had his fingerprints, and it was found in the dumpster, that maybe somebody stole his gun. Maybe he was been framed. You, you still wouldn't know for sure. You could take any one of these, or in some cases, two or three, and could not prove that he did it. Put it all together, and you can have an airtight case against him. Now, I said all of this to, to say this concerning the way evidence works. And let me show you the way the materials that the young people come in contact with, and, and you will also if you read some of the things that I mentioned. If an atheist is handling the evidence for God, he will take an evidence 
whatever it may be, we'll, we're going to look later on at some of the evidences. He'll take an evidence, and the truth is there is no one evidence that can prove the existence of God. And so he will show the weaknesses in that one evidence, just like we can show the weakness in uh, any one of these things. Uh, hold, hold on now, just a minute, Tim. We can show the weakness on any one of those pieces of evidence. Well, he can do it. Well, then what he does, he takes and he puts it back. He pulls out the next evidence. And atheist philosophers have been doing this all through the centuries. And they will take these evidence, piece by piece, one at a time, and refute them. Every last one. And so here is this young person going through college. And it seems that, hey, every piece of evidence I've got is being refuted. This guy is showing all the weakness in it. But what he's doing can be done with any case that ever goes to court. The evidence has to be considered in its entirety. And there is no one piece that will prove the case. This is the very nature of evidence. And so we need to always be calling, yes, I understand that we're not saying that this one fact makes this evident. We're saying this one fact is an evidence that leans in the direction of making that evident. And when we add this fact to it and this fact, eventually it's like turning on candles in this room. Eventually you get enough candles turned on so that you can see everything in it. All right, now, when it comes to the Bible, the same thing happens. If you read from liberal scholars who have gone to the, the seminaries, and if you must read one of their commentaries on Matthew, they would present it to you as something that was strictly the work of human beings and something where you could not be sure of what was said and what really happened. And you would follow their arguments and, and you'd say, how are they doing this? But yet they would be doing it. And they would use reasonable and logical arguments and they would be doing the same thing that you do if you were on the jury and they present evidence, but the evidence is not complete. And so you would be saying, hey, I can see what you're saying, but that's just not enough. So these people take the Bible. Now, let's pull Genesis out and try to prove that Genesis is inspired by God. You can't do it. I defy the most devout, strongest believer to take the book of Genesis and prove on the basis of evidence that the inspiration of God lies behind just that book. If that's all you've got to work with, pull out Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, etc. go all the way through the Old Testament, there is not a single solitary book that you can pull out and prove that that book is inspired by God. Now let's go to the New Testament. Let's take Matthew. Prove Matthew is inspired. Prove Jesus as the Messiah with nothing but the book of Matthew. You can't do it. You just can't do it. It may be true. It would be like me seeing somebody shoot and I'm one somebody else and I'm one witness. I may have seen him, it may be the truth, but one witness will not convince that jury. There has to be a plurality of sources that blend together. That's the way evidence works. So you go all the way through the Bible, and so the liberal scholar, the atheist, the unbeliever, the agnostic can take out any one of these books, and they can show any young person or anybody else the deficiencies in that book. Anyway, but they don't just take the book, they go to the individual book and they pull statements out in something called form criticism. And they'll take this statement here out by Jesus and, say, and they'll say, prove that Jesus actually said this. Prove that Luke's just not writing this speech and sticking it in his mouth. Well, how do you prove that? When you have a speech by Jesus or a parable and that individual parable is pulled out, how do you, how do you prove that Luke didn't just stick that in, in his mouth? You can't. You can't prove the inspiration of the Bible by looking at one book. But you put all 66 of these books together and you use other information that you have. And when you do that, I honestly believe, and so have billions through the centuries, that you can build an absolute airtight case for the inspiration of the Bible. 
what is true with the inspiration of the Bible is true with the deity of Jesus, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Take any one of the evidences and you can show some weaknesses in it. If all you had was the Apostle Paul, you could not prove the resurrection of Jesus. If all you had was Peter, you couldn't prove it. If all you had was the ladies, it's, it's when you put it all together, along with the prophecies, and along with the other information you have, that you began to constitute proof. And so what I'm saying in the field of evidence is, obviously there has to be a reason that these people with doctor's degrees that don't believe, there has to be a reason that, that they can put forth for their unbelief, and they can. And if some of your children are raised up and taken to church and, and they go to Bible study, and then they go to college, and as they come out of college, some of them go into unbelief, there obviously has to be a reason for it, but there's nothing difficult to understand in what happens. That's exactly what happens. They just simply take these individual pieces of information and, and show the weaknesses in it. But the strength is in the entirety of the evidence, and it all stands together. And by the way, one of the mistakes of our fellowship has been in not studying the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, we, for years, uh, we're getting better, but for years have neglected the Old Testament Scriptures. And the truth is, you cannot even fully understand, much less prove a lot in the New Testament, uh, unless you have that background from the Old Testament Scriptures. Okay, Tim, you want to... Okay, basically, the claim of the theist is that the evidence we have makes the existence of God evident. In other words, we claim, those of us that believe, that when you look at all the evidence we have for a creator, it's of such a nature that it leaves you no choice, if you're an honest person, but to believe in God, that it makes it all openly clear. The claim of the Bible believer is that the evidences make the inspiration of the Bible evident. The claim of the Christian is that the evidences make the resurrection of Jesus evident. The claim of the atheist is that evidence makes it evident that there is no God. The claim of the unbeliever is that there is insufficient evidence to prove the inspiration of the Bible. And some unbelievers would say not only is there insufficient evidence, there is evidence in the Bible itself that proves that it's not inspired of God. Okay, Tim. Okay, now, when we begin the reasoning process, the facts we're all looking at when we think about God is human, we're, we're human beings, we exist, we're here, we are an empirical fact. The animals are here, the earth is here, the solar system is here, the galaxies are here. Alright? The theist, through deduction, looks at this and says that I see so much intelligence, I see so much design, I see so much purpose, I see so much planning, I see planning, I see so much on and on and on that there is absolutely no way to explain it except through a creator. Okay, the atheist looks at the same thing and he says that the result is dead matter and pure chance is the ultimate source. You say, what's his evidence? Well, he'll look at this earth and says, does the earth show the evidence of an almighty loving God when you have tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent and decent people that are starving and dying at, at, any, good at any given time? That all is evidence of of chance. He would even come to your body and show that you are subject to cancer and heart attacks and, and all kinds of things and Alzheimer's disease and babies are born deformed and, and can a loving, intelligent creator be the author of, of, born, of babies being born deformed, of Alzheimer's disease, of cancer? And they would say that all of these things, 
these weird diseases like AIDS that exist, uh, hepatitis and, and tuberculosis and all. Well, if there is a creator, is he some kind of a sadist that he puts us here and then puts all these diseases out there for us to get? And so he would say that all of that is evidence that there is no intelligent, loving, kind being behind all of this, but it is all a matter of chance. Okay, Tim, next one. Okay, the questions, two of them, is what exactly are the evidences? And during the course of the, the study, that was the design of it, to look at uh, the evidence is both ways. And then why are we limited to the realm of evidence? This really is the first one we look at. You ever thought much on this on your own? Uh, uh, I know that used to bother me when I would uh, sit out and I'd do a lot of reading. And I'd take Isaiah and I'd, I'd read all the materials trying to prove that Isaiah was written at a certain period of time. Because by the way, uh, we think of Isaiah as a prophet, but unless you can prove that he lived before these things happened and he wrote before, then that's not necessarily prophecy. The unbeliever would say Isaiah wrote history after it happened and made it a, was dishonest and made it appear as prophecy. That's what he would say. But anyway, as I'd go through all the various arguments and examine the material and, and try to see, can you really prove that Isaiah was written at this period of time? Can you really prove that Moses wrote uh, in the 1400s BC? Can you really prove uh, these things about David and whatnot? But then it was always in my mind, especially when I was young, why in the world am I having to work so hard at this? And when I go out and talk to people, that some of which have seemed to be sincere and all, why don't God just speak? Uh, you know, a fellow, an atheist by the name of Ingersoll, uh, stood before a group one time and, and took off his watch and he cursed God. And he said, uh, if there is a God, then strike me dead in five minutes. Late odds on the fact that he would still be standing in five minutes. Five minutes passed, he wasn't struck dead, and he took that as evidence there is no, uh, there is no God. And if I had been a believer there in the audience, <laughs> I'd have been pulling for God to strike him. You know, that, uh, wake, wake that guy up, at least dangle a little fire over his head or whatever. Uh, when you come to the Ayatollah or when you come to Saddam Hussein, don't you, wouldn't you just like for the Lord to, to just speak out and say, hey, here I am? And when you talk to your friends that are not Christian or who don't go to church and you've got to reason with them and, and learn all this sophisticated stuff, uh, have you ever thought, why in the world make it so complicated and so hard? If God wants us to believe, why is it so difficult, or you might say, why are we limited to the realm of evidence? Uh, we don't have to be limited. If there is a God, it's God's choice that we are limited to the realm of evidence. Okay, Tim. Number one, whether you believe in God or, or not, we're limited because we're finite. By finite, we mean we have definable limits. The atheist walks by faith. By the way, that's a misconception that the atheist and the evolutionist sometimes leave, and that is that, that Christianity is a system of faith and theirs is a system of facts. But we all walk by faith. The, the only question is, what do you have your faith in? The very nature of being finite means that everything we believe about the past is by faith. And it will come as a result of examining the evidence. And anything we believe about the future, there's not a, I'm in, I have a class to teach tomorrow morning, and I plan to be there with a prepared lesson, but I'm not certain I'll be there. And you're not certain you'll be there either. Uh, you, you go to bed by faith that you'll get up and be there. That you're finite, uh, you're subject to any number of things that could happen to you, and so every 
thing you have about the future. It's not, it's not people that believe in heaven that are walking by, by faith. Everybody's walking by faith. The only question is what we have our faith in. But every human being that is tonight, and that's all of us, looks at his future by faith. He is absolutely for certain about nothing in the future so far as this life is concerned. And then in the present, anything that's going on in the world right now outside of this room, if I believe any of it, it will be by faith. And as a result of examining the evidence, because I am so finite and I'm so limited uh, that I can only see and hear within the confines of, of this room. Okay, now, obviously, if there is a God, isn't it interesting that God chose this? We have to say that this is part of the will of God, that we are finite, and that we have limitations, and that God has made a choice to limit us and to make us walk by faith. Uh, Tim, flip up some of these uh, reasons. These are biblical reasons that I think help to give us an idea of what is involved in this thing of, uh, of why we have to walk in the way we do. Look at the statement that Jesus made. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What is the implication about anybody that's not hungry and thirsting for what is right? That they won't. They won't have it. So in other words, the people that wind up with what is right will be people that hunger and thirst for it. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. What if we were not limited to the realm of evidence? Would you have to seek or knock or ask or hunger and thirst for it? You wouldn't. Uh, you, you would have it without any of those. Look at this 25 through 28. I like that. In, I think it says a lot in, in Matthew 11. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, it was for your, your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me, my Father, by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you rest. Okay, now what does he mean when he says that, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. There were certain people that this information that Jesus was giving out, they weren't seeing it because he was hidden. He was in some sense hidden from it. Well, didn't God want them to know about it? Did he want them to believe it? And then there were others, uh, remember we read like publicans and harlots and the common people that hurt him gladly. And then in other people, they would see even miracles and he would say a sinful generation continues to seek after a sign and rebuke them. And they would look and uh, some people could look at a miracle and say you do it by the power of the devil. And another person would look at the same thing and was wild. Then on the, about the seed of the kingdom, he says the seed on good soil is, is uh, those with a noble and good heart who hear the word. The seed of the kingdom is the word, but he said that the word, in order to cause us to believe and to hold on and continue on, is dependent upon a certain type of heart. Let me ask you this. All through the years, you have known people that have come to believe and then get, got caught up in the riches and cares of this life and left, right? Still believe, but they got caught up in the riches. And you've known people, that young people that got so involved and having a good time that they left. Even you, You've known that. Uh, and you've known those, or we've, I'll give you some stats on some people that have left in unbelief. Right, what if... What if every time you came to worship, there was some fantastic miracle 
you went out to the cemetery one week and the dead man or dead woman was raised. You went over to the hospital and went into somebody on the deathbed and told them to get up. And, and that just went on every Sunday. You think you'd have that very much problem with these people going into the world? Or I don't think you would. I, I can't, I don't think you would, that uh, you wouldn't have near as much problem with the young people or, or that kind of thing happening. Or what if every time you came to the city, go into the world and, and we could hold on to people that are going into unbelief, etc. Uh, why doesn't he do it? Why does he, why does he make it so hard by, by giving us this information, the book that was finished 2,000 years ago, put us in a position where we got to bust our rear end studying and acquiring information and go through a reasoning process. What does he, what does he seem to be doing? It's, it's as if he's only trying to appeal to a certain type of disposition, isn't it? I mean, he wants us all saved. Michael, you wanted your wife to marry you. You asked her. But even though you wanted her to marry you, would you want her if she didn't love you? Or vice versa? Uh, there's a guy that I saw this on uh, the news the other day. Everybody aware of this rich guy to get where he's at? It's a multi-millionaire, and he's been so busy he hasn't taken time to meet a woman to get married. And now he's advertising, and it, it's interesting. He's a he's kind of a skinny, frail-looking guy, and the first time that he uh, he went out to get he didn't tell everybody he's rich, and he didn't get a lot of response. You know, he didn't didn't get a lot of response. Then word got out that this guy is a multi-millionaire. And he can't handle the response. He can't handle it. Well, do you think that in before he picked somebody, that he would want to be as sure as he can, what he, that he could be, that they wasn't marrying him just for his money? Do you think that maybe that all wealthy people have a real problem in getting a mate because they've got to try to determine in their own mind, are they interested in me or my money? I think so. Uh, I think uh, you, I think in dating, uh, 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 real attractive girls have a real problem because they've always got to be fighting in their own mind: uh, is that person really like me, or is it just a physical attraction? They've got to always be going through that in their in their mind. Uh, I know I've raised four daughters. And Barbara and I regularly talk to them when they're dating. And, oh, he's so nice to me, etc., etc. And I say, listen. Uh, most guys are going to be nice to attractive girls. I said, that don't, you've got you to go beyond that and, and, and look for more. In the same vein, if God made himself an overwhelming presence, if he did not make us with our limitation, if he did not limit us to the realm of evidence, maybe we could have the whole town in church. But would they be there because they were hungering and thirsting after what is right? Would they be there because they had come to love God and come to love Christ? In other words, God doesn't want us just to have faith in Christ. He wants us to love Him. And He doesn't want us just to believe in Him. He wants us to love Him. In fact, the ultimate goal is not faith, is it? It's love. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Faith will be fulfilled. And there will come that time when everything will be sight, but what will exist is love. Well, then how does God ensure? Keep in mind, faith is not the goal that gets you where you're going. How is God going to be sure that the ones that enter into that eternal fellowship with him are there because they love him? And they are hungering and thirsting after what is right. I suggest to you that it's, it's no accident that we are made with the limitations that we have. On the one hand, we have to walk by faith. But keep in mind, we're not handicapped. God has made us in his image. We have intellect. And we actually have the capacity to evaluate information. 
and to come to know on the basis of evidence where it's true, but because it's limited to the realm of evidence, it allows us to reject it if we want to. What's the next number, Tim? I was going to... Oh, okay. Throw the quote up. This is... Uh, remember the verses. By the way, there was some passages from Job that I purposely did not use that fit it to a T because I thought there may be some here that did not believe, and if I got into that passage, I'd open up another can of worms, and I didn't want to do that. This is a statement from a fellow by the name of William James, a pragmatic philosopher. The question of having moral beliefs at all or not having them is decided by our will. If your heart does not want a world of moral reality, your head will assuredly never make you believe in one. Notice what he's saying there. When things are limited to the realm of evidence, you can explain them away if you want to. And so we have evidence of God and of the Bible. But keep in mind, once you prove God and once you prove the Bible, you do something else. You also prove moral accountability. That means I can't just do anything I want. That, that I become accountable. I can't just do things and say, it's, not, it's none of your business, Mark. You take care of yourself and I'll do my own thing. That I become accountable to an ultimate right and wrong. What he's saying is that the bottom line is when it comes to trying to prove God or to prove Christ, that unless somebody in and of themselves actually desires a world of moral reality, what I mean by moral reality, hungering and thirsting for what is right, some of us are indignant at an Adolf Hitler and a Stalin and a Hussein. And in the idea of, of Mother Teresa and people like that and Adolf Hitler dying, and there's no accountability. They all go back to the dust. It doesn't, with some of us, that just doesn't seem right. Some of us become indignant when we hear about others being murdered or raped or beat up or whatever. And so there is a hungering and thirsting for what is right. We want to see people treated in a fair way. And he says, unless you have that quality, and as a result, we actually want God. I suggest to you that those people that wind up believing in God want God to exist. I wanted to believe when I was in unbelief. It was appealing to me. I needed the evidence, but I actually wanted to believe. And I think in the same way that if a person reads the life of Christ and he does not find that life appealing, he will find ways to reject and explain away every piece of evidence you can give him. If he finds that life appealing, he will want to be honest with the evidence. And we've already looked at evidence and shown that if you want to, you can always explain evidence away. Just take it piece at a time. All right, to give you another example of how this thing is important. Anybody else here had a background in the school system? I, <clears throat> I, one of the things, of course, you do when you're a principal is you, you're the disciplinarian in the school. And I don't know how many times I've dealt with a problem of here is a, a child, a student, that has done something wrong, and a teacher saw it, and an aide saw it, and a janitor saw it. And that mother looked me right in the face with that child saying they didn't do it and says, unless they, my child doesn't lie, unless they tell me they did it, I'll never believe it. And I have seen adults turn away, not from one, one adult to be mistaken, but turn away from statements by a plurality of adults because they were so biased in favor of that child. I'm saying that evidence will not convince you of anything unless you're willing to be honest and I'm biased with it. Here's an example that I've cut out. This says, don't let cancer kill you. You see that ugly black thing? That's the lung of a 55-year-old, or a 45-year-old who died of lung cancer. But the black is not cancer. The 
wide is just from smoking. The other is along the 55 year old that died in car wreck. Anybody see that? Uh, that's what they all have on the cartons, because that's, that's reality. Here's another one. Virginia Slim. Okay, now down here at the bottom, it says, Surgeon General's warning, smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and it may complicate pregnancy. Of course, uh, they have different signs on all of them, right? There's all kinds of other negative things you can say about that thing. Well, then why is it that with the Attorney General saying this, and pictures like this floating around, we, we had little signs up in our school, and you heard about Marlboro Country. Marlboro Country to us was a cemetery. The children made the signs. Well, why do people start? I mean, why did they start? But there's two messages being sent there, right? One of them is factual and evidence, but this says you've come a long way, baby. And it shows this very attractive woman and it leaves the impression that there's something in smoking that makes it obvious to others that, hey, I'm not going to wind up in the kitchen. And I'm not going to be like they were back there. I am equal with boys. I've come a long way. And I'm willing to, she's on a motorcycle. I'm willing to take a few risks in life and show everybody that I'm my own person. I think for myself. And so that's the message that goes out. And so despite all the negative things, by the way, while smoking is on the down, so far as man is concerned, it's on the up with ladies. It's literally on the up with ladies. Well, this is just a good example because you might again ask the question, if the evidence is so overwhelming for God and so overwhelming for the Bible and Christ, why don't everybody buy into it? Well, we've already looked at that. And we can see that there can be other things that are so appealing to you that you can simply make the choice. But if God did not make us finite and with limitations, I suggest that you wouldn't have that choice. And so we would have a situation of people in church or people embracing the commands and all who really didn't love God, who really didn't hunger and thirst after righteousness, who really weren't seeking truth and wanting a relationship with God, but were only there because they were scared of hell. Just like if you were a bank robber and you went to the bank and you get there and there's 10 policemen at the door, you'd probably change your mind. You're still a thief though, still a thief. You change your mind, but you're still a thief. Well, the Lord, by making us finite, takes the guards off the bank and we do what we want to. And so by limiting himself to the realm of evidence, he limits himself to those people that will seek and knock and understand. But I suggest to you the importance of the subject of evidence is, is that I honestly believe there are a lot of very sincere people, as there have always been, of people that are in skepticism and unbelief out there not because they want it. I believe there's unbelievers that find Christianity appealing, but have heard so much of the other that they have an intellectually hard time buying into it. And then top that off with the fact, that, by the way, if you, if you uh, let's say you don't go to church and all you know about Christianity is what you see on TV and all the Christians you meet in the world, what do you think now? You say, you haven't read the Bible and what if you've got somebody you work with that goes to church on Sunday and runs around on the right during the week, uh, uses foul language, dishonest on the job? What does that make you think about Christianity? And so I'm saying that you can have people out there that honestly want to believe and, and honestly reason in their own mind, well, if there is a God, I'm as well off as, as they are. And so I really believe that when we study evidences, it's not with the idea that if you've got enough evidence and you just load your mind up, you're going to convert everybody out there because you're not. The very fact you're dealing with evidence means that you're always going to be limited to that individual who is hungering and thirsting and who's willing to be honest and who's seeking after truth. He's the only one you'll ever reach. 
But those people that are that way, but have been influenced through wrong information, they are the ones that really we're going to reach, and they are the ones that we're going to put forth the effort and to study the information and, and learn how to handle it. Tim, was there another one? Uh, There's three more, but these okay. actually start out evidence, so you may... I'm going to wait on that. Yeah, I, yeah you may what, what we're doing now, this was an overview of the reason for the study of evidences, uh, an examination of why God limits himself to the realm of evidence, uh, and by the way, a fantastic book to study in that one area is the book of Job. And then an introduction to the field and, and some of what's available, and then the next time we would be to start in the actual evidences for the existence of God, and over a period of weeks would study uh, the evidences for the existence of God, for the inspiration of the Bible, and for the deity and for the resurrection of Jesus.